and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer to the African deity, Eshu Legba, a deity that lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victims. So we should definitely pause, take a breath, and exercise our options. And we are really excited today uh, to be speaking to um, to Brother Adewale. Uh, how do you pronounce your last name? Ige. Ige. Yeah, I just met uh, Brother Adewale yesterday at the College of Alameda. He was one of the uh, scholars who presented um, about uh, something that has to do with you know African heritage at the kickoff for the college's month-long series of events. And the uh, actually the activities continue today with the um, a campus resource fair. Um, and HBCU or Historic Black Colleges and Universities transfer. So you can check all that out in L215 uh, from noon to 1.30. And there's going to be activities happening for the entire month, um, the 8th, the 11th, the 13th, the 18th, the 26th, concluding on the 27th with a Sunday dinner, which is going to be on a Thursday, <laughs> with poetry and music um, with a special guest, uh, Bryant B. Bowlings and Zakia Cape Hart uh, Bowlings in the pit, the F building. And all of these activities are free. And, again, they all start at 12 noon. And there are activities happening throughout the Peralta Community College District. But we're going to be focusing on College of Alameda and, uh, and speaking to uh, Brother Adewale uh, about, you know, African uh, Heritage Month and Dr. Carter G. Woodson and growing up in Philadelphia, now he's in California. So talk to us a little bit. Um, thank you so much for joining us on such short notice. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, doing the, uh, the presentation that I, um, I did at the College of Alameda yesterday um, was really exciting for me because I had the opportunity, as well as another student as well, to actually give a profound, illuminating picture of our honorary leaders that, I find is sheltered and pushed to the side. I find that the indoctrination of most so-called institutions of learning picture the history after 1865, but it's not before then. It starts in an in a enslavement period. And I don't think that's prudent for any people, 
of any culture to be talked about in the declimate instead of talking about how it got there, how it began in the beginning. So I was really excited to talk about that, especially having the opportunity to speak about the Honorable Mumia Abu-Jamal, despite what people may think of him, if one were to analyze him critically, knowing that he's an award-winning, award-winning journalist, knowing that he was a Black Panther since he was 15 years old, knowing that he led student walkouts throughout the high schools of the city of Philadelphia when he was only 16, I believe he was 16 or 17 years old, the march out of Benjamin Franklin High School as well as other high schools in Philadelphia because he wanted to change the name of Benjamin Franklin High School into the Honorable Malcolm X High School. So to have a person of that stature to illuminate the problems that we're having in this so-called justice system and the difference between one America and a black America is a complete difference that he was actually illuminating, and that caused him political problems. Right, right. Did you um did you attend um the uh the school that was renamed? Um uh, was that your high school? Um No, the school was never renamed for obvious reasons. It's gonna be very difficult to take down Benjamin Franklin when it's dealing with Europeans opposed to dealing with Malcolm X, the honorable Malcolm X with mm-hmm. us. It's more valuable to us for obvious reasons. But the school name was never changed. I attended Simon Gratz High School. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Who's that? <laughs> uh, Simon Grant's High School is known to be an athletic school uh, due to its oh. phenomenal basketball team and football team, but more uh, more than more the basketball team. But now that school has closed down about, I believe, about nine years ago, and it has been reopened to a charter school, which is still named Simon Grant's Charter Academy, I believe the name of it. Okay. So it's basically a regular public high school, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering who that who the person was that um that has you know the school that's named after because you know most of us know Benjamin Franklin but might not know this other person. Oh no, we lost our guest. Oh shoot. Well, um, while we wait for uh, Adewale to call back into the studio, um. We were going to be um, playing uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal commentary, and uh, let me, uh, oh, here he is. Oh, I lost Hello? you, huh? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so we were going to play uh, commentary uh, by Mumia Abu-Jamal uh, on Black History Month, and do you want to preface it with any comments um, that you haven't already done so around uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal? Absolutely. I would like to say a few things in the introduction into this video because I think it's important to know why he's speaking the way he's speaking and what he's saying. What he's saying is prolific because he illuminates the fact that uh, so-called black history month, and I say so-called because it shouldn't, no one's history should be limited to, to 28 days nor 30, especially when it extends thousands of years beforehand. He talks about how Black History Month has been commercialized as far as memorabilia or mugs and stuff of that nature to not be taken seriously. Now, if it's something uh, opposed to that's anything that's European, like General Pulowski or something like that, they made a day for him. Um, and that will be treated as if it's more important. So the point of it, the meat of it is that I think we should listen to what he's saying because he shows statistically and he also shows 
the format in which it's being displayed, specifically keeping revolutionary leaders out, such as Dr. Huey P. Newton. People call him Huey P. Newton, not acknowledging the fact that he has a Ph.D. in social science. Also, um, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. We talk about Dr. Martin Luther King, but they make it so when it's commercialized, we don't acknowledge that he has a Ph.D. in theology. But when we talk about Dr. Oz or Dr. Phil, it's said immediately. So the point that he's making is that show respect to our ancestors and listen to how, how systematically Black History Month has been commercialized. Okay, well, let's play that uh, commentary. And now a commentary from Mumia Abu-Jamal. For Revolutionary Black History Month, as February dawns, the papers and TV stations will feature programming that has more black faces than usual. Some will show movies, some documentaries, and some will feature history in celebration of Black History Month. Undoubtedly, Martin Luther King's epic March on Washington speech will be sampled. It's grainy black and white videotape, the very symbol of a bygone era, and its catchphrase, thank God almighty, thank God almighty, we're free at last. A haunting and ironic mockery of the real state of most of black America. One tape that invariably will not be shown is one of the final press conference of the nation's first and perhaps only black Supreme Court Justice, Thurgood Marshall, aged and ill, yet with a presence of mind to say, I'm still not free. For millions of black Americans, this Black History Month, while perhaps rich in symbol, comes amidst crippling joblessness, haunting home foreclosures, rabid police terrorism, and perhaps the highest black incarceration rate in U.S. history, and all that that entails. That we have Black History Month at all is due to the black freedom movements of the 1960s and the efforts of black historian Carter G. Woodson, who began his efforts with Negro History Week back in the 1920s. Yet, it begins, as do all struggles for progress, with a movement. If black mothers and grandmothers, and later black schoolchildren, didn't follow King's lead, we wouldn't know his name, except perhaps as an historical footnote. For without followers, there is no movement, and thus no progress. The great Marxist historian C.L.R. James, in his finest work, Black Jacobins, A History of the Haitian Revolution, tells the story of how the leadership, including General Toussaint Louverture, tried repeatedly to betray the revolution, only to face two immovable forces. The racist recalcitrance of the French government of Napoleon, who wanted to restore slavery, and the militants of the black soldiers who pushed them forward to revolution. The point? People make history by mass movements, often ones which go faster and further than the leaders want. And masses make and sustain revolutions, often against leaders whose every inkling is to betray them. Millions of Africans broke their chains, and though they were penniless, hungry, illiterate, and scarred by the ravages of bondage, found weapons and the will to fight for freedom against the upholders of slavery, France, Britain, and Spain. They beat them all because their hunger for freedom was greater than anything, anything. Millions of black people joined or formed movements 
that fought for freedom from U.S. apartheid and the segregation system throughout the South. They made change against police violence and racist state terrorism. Movements change things. They change consciousness. Then they change societies. That's the meaning of Black History Month. It's not the first this, uh, the first that. It's not how some pretty black starlet got paid to play a harlot in a movie or how many millions of black yet silent athletes got paid to play a child's game to entertain people. It's about everyday average black people just like you who decide to come together to fight for freedom and social change, black people and their allies. It's about making history today, not in the 60s. To quote the late Kwame Touré, organize, organize, organize. From Prison Nation, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. Uh, always on point, our brother Mumia Abu-Jamal. So, I absolutely um, love to hear him speak. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. He's always, you know, very, very thoughtful. Um, so, so tell us about, um, you know, sort of your um, entree into um, to interest and study of of our our people's history and culture. Um, you are a part of um, Professor Jody Campbell's um, uh, course at the College of Alameda. Um, uh, African American uh, history class, and um, but you, you know, your presentation was looking at African diaspora history. You know, um, because you talked about our history here, you talked about our history in the past, and you also talked about, you know, the global African consciousness. So, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your interest in um, African um, and African diaspora history and culture. <clears throat> and um, yeah, and just talk a little bit more about about yourself. Could you have some projects you mentioned that you're working on? Oh, absolutely. Um, growing up in uh, Philadelphia, specifically North Philadelphia, my father is from Lagos, Nigeria. So um, that background is there. I'm I'm a member of the Yoruba people. I'm part of Yoruba people. That's my uh, people. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm looking at the fact that. Growing up and throughout high school, elementary and middle school, I was receiving a different education than I received in the indoctrination in school. I noticed that, and I started to feel sad and depressed that I've never heard anything positive about me in school in reference to our people collectively. So as my father started to teach me more about who I am and later on in life reading different books, uh, which is a book by Dr. Carter G. Woodson, the Miseducation of the Negro, and also several Mumia books and other people as well, the Honorable Marcus Garvey, it gave me a racial pride that erupted in my body, and it made me super proud of myself to know that we made these great accomplishments that has been purposely shelved. Now, from then, as far as in antiquity, learning about that in the past, before the 1500s and before 1865, obviously, the so-called Emancipation Proclamation, I moved to California, and I met a professor named Professor Menu M. Pim. He's the, he's, he's the chair of African-American studies and anthropology and history at Contra Costa Community College in San Pablo, California. When I met uh, Professor Menu, he has taken me to Egypt, to Kemet, which they call Egypt, 
to do primary research. And doing that primary research on the Egyptian people, the real Egyptians, um, not the Arabs that's there now who invaded in 640 and been, has been there ever since. I started to notice the great accomplishments that we made, mathematics, science, astrology, astronomy, the very first calendar ever made. Seeing those things firsthand and not reading it from a book that could come from someone else's perspective, granted that the work is well footnoted or not, to see with my own eyes is breathtaking. Since that time, that was a year and a half ago. <clears throat> Excuse me. That was a year and a half ago. I started to write a journal on the things that I've seen, and I started to conduct my primary research based around my journal in the future to get it published to let people see what I've seen at this age and to be in a country to see all the documents, everything was resounding to me. After that, uh, Professor Maynou noticed the interest I've been taking in studying the Nile Valley Africans, where the world started literally, which is Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sudan. In that area, that's where civilization started. So to understand those things and the opportunity this summer coming in July to study in Ethiopia, the entire country, as I studied in Egypt, the entire country, I'm very much looking forward to that and to completing the journal on that and also Sudan the following year after this one, which will be July of 2021. Professor Manu is going to help me. He's going to assist me in publishing my journal for people to see and uh, observe my work. I say that to say that learning these things and let me look at the world a totally different in a totally different perspective to overstand the contributions, the many, many contributions that our African people has brought to the world that has been ignored. So these great leaders and great professors, including Professor Jody Campbell, including Professor uh, Robert McKnight from Berkeley City College, and Professor Jody Campbell teaches at uh, Laney College, I mean, excuse me, College of Alameda. These mentors that's been around me has molded me well to the point where I can actually see the accomplishments and overly appreciate them to the point where I can express it to others so they can get interest to investigate those accomplishments. One thing that really blew my mind as far as on my journey, which is to become a professor of African history and earn a PhD in teaching this so, when I was exposed to Makati Hatshepsut, who is an African queen, the first known African queen, in Egypt, when she invented birth control in the year 1550 BCE, that blew my mind. And to see the documents and the records that they have in University of California, Berkeley, in their science building, astound me. 1550 BCE. And she invented it by using the shrub of a cateris and natural honey that produces lactic acid that kills sperm cells. That there propelled me to search even deeper, to learn about how she, how, how she ruled during the 18th dynasty, and she ruled for 20 years, and all the accomplishments she's gained. And that's an antiquity. So to see, to see those things and to find out that we made the world's first calendar, the Stella calendar, made in 10,000 BCE, that's amazing to me. 
So it put me on a mission to illuminate the cop to contribute to illuminating the accomplishments that we have made in this world that's not being recognized. Right. Wow. Wow. That's that's pretty amazing though. Um, birth control, fifteen fifty, BCE. That's a long time ago. Yeah, a very a very long time before the pill and the patch. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow, wow! How interesting. Yeah. So, what what year are you in now? Are you are you um, transferring this year? Yes, I'm actually transferring. Uh, I just graduated from Laney College, uh, which is located okay. in Oakland, California, and I've already submitted my application to the. Oh, thank you. I appreciate. It. I really appreciate. It. You're invited to the graduation. It's May 23rd at Laney College on the football field. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, okay. I, I've submitted my application <laughs> to the University of California, Berkeley. I received mm-hmm. my acceptance letter April 17th. I was taught to speak it into existence. That's why I put it that way. And mm-hmm. furthermore, um, once I finish here with my undergraduate, which is going to be in African-American studies, I'm going to pursue my master's. That's going to be in history. And my uh, Ph.D. is also going to be in history with the focus of Africana studies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, nice. nice. So we might... You might decide to stay local and and come back and teach at Peralta, right? Absolutely. I've talked to Professor Jody Campbell. We've talked about a timeline in my personal work and my research and what I've been doing and my progression and mm-hmm. development as a student under these mentors I've mentioned previously and also mentors that, you know, it's not our ancestors now, Brother Malcolm, uh, Donald Marcus Garvey, uh, Noble Drawley, many people that that I've studied. He was showing me how to segue into the career as far as being a professor and getting the information. So we talked about that. So I'm definitely looking forward to coming back to the Peralta system to uh, help educate our people and other people as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Wow, wow. So so tell us a little bit about, um, you know, sort of learning more about um, your African roots. Um, you know, you mentioned that, that your dad – is is from Lagos and um and so you're you know you're African like more recently <laughs> and you know African American you have you have both heritages um you know as a part of, of your your person. So why don't you could talk a little bit about that. It's similar to um uh you know President um Barack Obama, you know, he's African and American. Um so, um, yeah, why don't you talk a little bit about about having, you know, those two heritages coursing in, in your person and um and and what you've learned about about your paternal heritage and as well as your maternal if if you know about your mother's um you know, roots. Yes, because I mean uh, I want yeah. to get into mm-hmm. that. Okay, yeah. Uh Growing up in my house, in my household, I have two siblings, two older brothers, and growing up, mm-hmm. it was different for us because my father's philosophy was when we're in the home, once we walk through the front door, we're in Africa, mm-hmm. we're in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. So all the cultural practices, the greeting, the bowing, the way we speak, the way we conduct our everyday life, the way we bathe, all those things are conducted the same way back home that my father wanted to build an infrastructure so we won't lose that because it's been taken from mass, the masses of our people. So he taught us those things to hold on to. Now, when we walk out the door to go to school or work or 
whatever, that's when we're in America. And he's not denoting superiority, inferiority, or separating the two. What he's denoting is the fact that we should understand where we come from and where we're living and understand where we're living so we can compare and contrast and make a marriage with the two and also have knowledge of both sides. So all of the things that we've been learning, referring to my brothers and myself, was based around that core infrastructure. Furthermore, my mother's heritage or my, my mother's father, his name is Marilyn. He comes from an Indian reservation. From what I understand, his, uh, he was a part of Cherokee Nation. And my mother's mother uh, is what they will call, what people will call an African-American. She was born and raised here. So I don't know too much about my grandfather because he already made his transition to become an ancestor. But I do remember vaguely small things about him. He taught me about dream catchers and what's the true purpose, not just to catch bad dreams, but to let prosperity through. And he taught me about what the feathers were for, which was a sign of significance as far as stature. He taught me those things. He used to live at 22nd in Lehigh. That's prominent to me because it's directly across the street from a school called Dobbins High School, which is considered to be a leading uh, advanced school in Philadelphia. So um, those lessons I learned from him and my father and my mother, and my mother already, my mother has made her transition to become an ancestor July 12, 1999. So she made her transition when I was 14 years old. So she taught me as much yeah. as she could about her father. And also what I really respect and am glad and privileged for, she taught me about my father in his young years when he came to America in 1971. And she talked about his how he injected himself in the community in the trials and tribulations that he has faced, such as I have faced him as well, having an African name, having to tell someone, that my, not having as I've regretted it, but telling someone my name is Adewale Olainka Ige. Pronouncing that to someone is very difficult. They're not familiar. So it would kind of in, in, it injects an inferiority complex on the average person. But for me, I was proud of it because I know my name has a meaning, which means the crown has returned home. And my middle name tells how I was born, child born with the umbilical cord around the, around the throat. That's what my name means. So it tells details how I was born, not just a name as we name basically. Uh, this is referring to African culture. I was taught not teaching that we're named after an a object, a commodity, a lamp, a couch, a chair. It has no meaning to it. It tells nothing about the entity. So that's the meaning of the name. That's the reason why we have names that have meanings for everything. So growing up with that, it gave me a, a racial ethnic pride, not just to be an, a Nigerian, not just to be Yoruba, not just to be uh, an African-American, not just to be here, but to acknowledge the existence that went into creating us of who we are mentally and how it's been extracted from us. As I said in my lecture, I emphasize slaves aren't born, they're made. It's a systematic process that happens. It starts with the physical but advances to the neurological, and it shackles the mind. It puts a handcuff on the mind because some people think that the Cadillac and the big house and the fancy car and the beach and the, and the trophy wife or a trophy girlfriend is what freedom is. That's some people. Freedom is freedom of the mind. That's freedom, to have the agency to have thoughts and act those out. So that's what we were taught growing up. Yeah. What um what brought your father um to the United States? Uh my father came to America for school and he he attended Temple University 
and uh, he plays soccer for Temple. He plays soccer when America they were called soccer. He plays football for um, for Temple University, and he came here just to extend his education and to see what the place they call America has to offer. Because back home, which is Nigeria, America is the best at branding itself. So to the outside of America, people see one thing, and people inside America see another. I'm not saying if it's good or bad or not. That's according to perception of the individual. But what I'm pointing out is that he wanted to see for himself. That's why he came to Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. So he came here, and that's why he decided to. He decided, excuse me, he decided to go to school, and he decided to you know explore. And his experiences were phenomenal to me as far as his his acceptance into the country, because here it's taught that Africans are savages. We eat people. We People ask me, do they have cars and housing? Because here in the Western Hemisphere, it's broadcasted the most impoverished sections of the continent, not the country, the continent. So it pushes people away from our Afri- our great, beautiful African people because we haven't been exposed to it. But on the other hand, what we're seeing back home in Africa, we see America as a big place of opportunity in which it is. However, we don't see the Jim Crow treatment as far as that historical context. We don't see the sharecropping. We don't see, which is also slavery by another name. We don't see the systematic uh, uh, racism, the mass incarceration. That's never broadcast in Africa. When I was in Kemet, I was there for 15 days, and I was watching the news critically, the world news, and I haven't seen anything from things that was happening currently. So that's the difference between the two that I've noticed and that he's noticed, and my mother relayed those messages to me. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I um, was um, looking at the uh, the news yesterday and, and noticed that um, Nigeria has been added and some other African countries like um, <clears throat> Eritrea and, um, <laughs> and Somalia have been added to the, uh, what do they call it, um, uh, the banned countries, like for immigration, um, that people who are coming from those countries will not be able to be allowed um, uh, permanent visas. That people won't be able to immigrate to this country from there, and uh, and so Nigeria was just added to the list last week on Friday. I was wondering if you have any thoughts about that. Is there a reason why he said that? And I'm I'm very proud to say the reason why he said that. The reason why he made that statement. Other than mm-hmm. he's delusional, he's very rational. You mean, you mean the president? In a, <laughs> yes. Well, uh-huh. the, so the, the person, the guy in office, I don't, I won't give him that mm-hmm. title. But anyway, okay. moving forward, the reason why he said it, I'm very proud to say it, and this is not to say anyone's better than anybody, but from what I understand, the Time magazine put out a poll on who holds the most advanced degrees, past bachelors, in America mm-hmm. in 2019. Nigerians are number one. That's the first thing. The second mm-hmm. thing, the highest paid engineer in the world is an African. I believe he's from Ghana. Hmm. Things like nice. things of this stature is the same rhetoric that he, he was spewing, saying that Mexicans, the great Mexican people who derived from the Olmec civilization, who birthed the Aztecs, who birthed the Mexicans, he was talking bad about them because they come here to this country and want to work. 
They are great, proud people, respectable people, honorable people, loving people, family-orientated people, everything that he's against. He's against his personal pocket, not the liberation and the, be- and to, and the beautiful people that come here to work and to contribute to this country, this great country, in certain areas. Mm-hmm. So he said that because no matter where anyone goes, and I when I say anyone, I mean anyone, any institution, a hospital, uh, any law firm, uh, anything dealing with law, politics, you will find Nigerians guaranteed, and it's, and it's a growth. So to stop that, he's trying to uphold white supremacy to keep Africans, Mexicans, uh, especially people from Ethiopia, other places that, that's contributing to the world that's not done by Europeans. So that's the reason why he's doing those things. He doesn't want the same thing to happen, you know, in Seven Eleven, when the Africans called Moors ruled Spain from Seven Eleven to fourteen hundred and ninety-five, he doesn't want that to happen again. So mm-hmm. that's that's the reason why he's putting uh, the negative context when it comes to Nigeria and other countries. Because if he if he's in a public media and he has the the agency and the so-called power to make certain statements, the people. I call them the peanut gallery who listen without doing investigating themselves. They won't mm-hmm. see the picture he's trying to paint. They won't see the real truth. So that's the reason why he's saying what he's saying. And we also have uh, the great, brilliant uh, neurosurgeon, which is a Nigerian, who cut his pay. I forget the brother's name at this point. He cut his pay. He reduced his pay just so he can mm-hmm. travel back to Nigeria to do neurosurgeries for free taking care of his people. This is what Donald Trump don't want. So that's why he said that, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to find that neurosurgeon that um, that you just mentioned. Um, <clears throat> hmm. Is he, um, is he, is he in this country or, um, or in, because I'm I'm looking at uh, Olawale Suleiman, but that's his name. Is that? I think that's. His yeah, name. yeah. He's at. Um, um, he is. Let's see. Um, <clears throat> I yeah, believe he works he's in the state. Yeah. He what? Say it again. I believe he works, he works in, in the United States, but he travels back home yeah. to Nigeria to do surgeries. Yeah. He. Um. um at, he, oh, he's at Arshnar uh, Neuroscience Institute in New Orleans. Um, yeah, I know that place. I'm from New Orleans. I, I know that particular place. Oh, okay. Wow. That's really, I'm so happy I asked you that question. <laughs> oh, See, people, wow. these, things yeah. aren't put, these things aren't put out there because he doesn't want, he did, uh, the guy in office, I, I'm annoyed I even said his name, but the guy in office, <laughs> he, he doesn't like the fact of the reciprocation of education. He wants indoctrination. Do this and I won't tell you. But I don't want to I wouldn't like this conversation to be about him because he's really not that important. So um the mm-hmm. things we're talking about is a lot more important than him. These accomplishments open the door for ambition for students such as myself. Just as Dr. Jawanza Kujufu put out uh in his lecture, Countering the Conspiracy to Destroy the Black Boy, sports is a mm-hmm. great thing in children. 
Sports is a great thing when it comes to the development of children, following direction, um, learning how, learning perseverance. However, he illuminates the fact he illuminates the fact that sports is publicized more than academia. So a child that's growing up in a community in which I grew up in Nicetown, which is in the the North Philly section of Philadelphia, we don't see these lawyers and astrophysicists and and things like that in the neighborhood or doctors for that matter. Because it's not shown. We see um, Michael Jordan, which is a great uh, man in certain areas for things that he do for the community. Same thing with LeBron James with his schooling. Jalen Rose. People don't know Jalen Rose has a high school that has 100% graduation rate and 100% college attendance rate. He had a school for over 10 years. Nobody knows about it. So these things should be put out there to show children that mm-hmm. your African brothers and sisters, that they call African-Americans, your African-American brothers and sisters, they're trying to make ways for us, but it's not publicized so we can aspire to be the next scholar, the next historian, the next doctor, the next astrophysicist. These things are possible if they're only shown to us. In high schools mm-hmm. and middle schools, they win the Super Bowl, wait, no, the, the high school basketball championship, the high school football championship. They have a pep rally. They wear their jerseys to school. They have all types of celebrations. In that same school, there's a young sister that won a spelling bee of over 1,000 words. Nobody knows about it. She has a trophy no bigger than a snicker bar. So is she compelled hmm. to continue forward? Hmm. So these are the questions that, that, we, that we must ask, and this is the reason for the division that's happening in this country because it's a great awakening courtesy, not 100%, but a major part of it was by the honorable brother from Oakland, California, and he's the one who made the Black Panther movie, Ryan Krugler. I honor that brother mm-hmm. so much for putting all that African history in there. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So it's a yeah. spiritual awakening for us and a cultural awakening for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just as yeah. uh well, no. mm-hmm. Oh continue, continue. Please I apologize. Oh, I was just gonna say, you know, um, you know, knowledge is definitely power and uh and knowledge itself is, is really, really important and, and so uh Professor Campbell, um in our planning of of this this uh African diaspora history month at the College of Alameda you know we we lead with the Indinkra Sankofa you know that you know you have to return you know to the source and get it because you know what you need is already there you just have to you know grab it you know it's it's there with our ancestors you know it's there historically you just have to you know reach back and grab it so then you can move forward. You don't have to invent new things because what we need is already present with us. And so, you know, definitely knowledge and knowledge itself is really, really important. So I was going to let you um, go ahead and finish your thoughts because we need to um, continue on with the show. And uh, definitely love to have you on again um, to just let me know when you, you know, have something you would like to share with our audiences. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm, I'm in the process of preparing something as well. I'll let you know. Uh, when I'm finished, uh, this what I'm preparing, and I, I believe mm-hmm. you're you're, you're going to enjoy it. But I also want to put two quotes there, and I think it's important as we're talking about the structure of us learning from each other. The Honorable Marcus Garvey said this in 1932. He said, "Any leadership that teaches you to depend on another race is a leadership that will enslave you." 
Brother Malcolm said, education is our passport to the future, for the future belongs to those who prepare for tomorrow today. He said that in 1964. The reason why I brought those two quotes up is because not just the educators, not just the students such as myself, but the people in the community, the elders need to come together and grab the aspiring youth, the elder youth, who the younger youth look up to them and mentor them not to go towards the mass incarceration rate, not to contribute towards that, not to take the easy route, so-called easy route, which appears to be to make the fast dollar. We have brothers that I know personally in Philadelphia that's doing things for the youth um, on a regular basis, such as a good friend of mine, Wallace Battle. He's been honored by the city of Philadelphia for giving back to the city as far as um, – he's a hip-hop artist as well. He goes by the name Reality Childs. He's doing things in the community for the children for 15, excuse me, 17 years. He's been honored by the Philadelphia Police Department for holding talent shows, book, book bags and backpacks for school uh, for the, the beginning of the school year. I know another brother named Ramon Leon. He's, doing, he's giving back, speaking dominantly on mass incarceration and how to prevent reoccurring crime. This is a brother who experienced it and who actually seen these things and who's coming back to the community snatching the youth, re-entering their soul inside their body as far as when it comes to knowledge of themselves. That's a beautiful thing. And I think that we should all contribute to that, and that's just what I wanted to bring to the program, and I'm very honored and very proud to have met you and very proud to be a student of Professor Jody Campbell, Professor Manu MP, and, and Professor Robert McKnight, and others as well. And I'm really proud of that. So I, I'm really proud to be accepted and requested to speak at my event, at, excuse me, not my event, at your event yesterday. And it really made me feel proud, and I'm honored forever for that, and I'm grateful for the opportunity, and I look forward to conducting more events and also trying to connect with our brothers and sisters throughout the country, namely where the city I grew up in and also local areas as well. All right, super. Well, thank you once again for joining us, uh, Brother Adewale. And, um, yeah, have a good rest of the day and definitely um, look forward to continuing our conversation about our people and culture. You have a good day. Thank you. I appreciate your time. So long. All right. Peace and blessings. So I want to let folks know about um, this other event, as I mentioned, that's happening at Laney College, uh, one of the Peralta sister colleges, uh, to Alameda, right uh, through the tube. Um, Laney College presents a Poor People's Campaign Teaching the Power of Your Vote on Tuesday, February 25th. There is a 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Housing, Education, Healthcare, and Elections um, Forum in the Laney Forum. And then that evening from 6 to 9, there's a presidential candidate debate and discussion in the Laney Bistro, which is the restaurant. And Laney College is located at 900 Fallon Street in Oakland. And for, inform- for more information, you can email humanrights, the numeral one, at icloud.com. Again, humanrights, the numeral one, at icloud.com. Or you can email kking at peralta.edu, kking at peralta.edu. And this event is um, co-sponsored by the Laney Poor People's Campaign, the ASLC, WEEP, um, Peralta Federation of Teachers, PFT, Diversity and Part-Time Faculty Committees, 
uh, Umoja Ubaka Student Success Community. And, uh, yeah, it looks really, really good. So, again, that's Tuesday, February 25th. You could just hang out at Laney, uh, 9 to 1 and 6 to 9. So we're going to play a song, Hold On, by Sounds of Blackness. Really love that song, love the words. And then we're going to segue right into uh, an interview that I had yesterday with um, uh, Speech Thomas, uh, uh, founder of um, of the group Arrested Development, and uh, he is uh, one of the uh, subjects in a film called 16 Bars, 1GL, One Recording Studio, directed by Sam Bathrick, and it's opening on Friday, February 7th through the 13th um, in San Francisco at the Four Star, and it's also going to be opening at the Smith Raphael Film Center in San Rafael, same same dates, February 7th through February 13th. The bonus is the director is going to be at the Four Star this Friday at the screening. So, um, so anyway, it's a great, great film when we talk about it. Um, it's great that the film was made. Um, it's about subject matter that we don't necessarily talk about or think about enough. And <clears throat> and that is, um, you know, sort of the effects of trauma on on recovery uh, from substance abuse, and and particularly for those that are locked away, you know, behind, you know, prison walls. And um yeah, this film is it's just it's just riveting and um I wrote a little something about it and I think I'll read it and um this is one of the drafts. <laughs> uh Sixteen Bars directed by Sam Bathrick. In the recently released film Sixteen Bars, One GL, One Recording Studio uh, 2019, directed by Sam Bathrick, Speech Thomas Arrested Development of Arrested Development hosts a music studio in a Richmond, Virginia jail. It takes a while for the project to get off the ground, but when it does, the four men form a bond, which we see evident in the music released on the album by the same title. Speech, whose Arrested Development track record speaks to this work and other work with those marginalized shelved and date stamped it's no stranger to work with men and women behind bars remember debbie pigler in crime after crime 2011 at ccwf or the central california women's facility uh rest development uh, did some work there as well bathrick's film follows anthony 21 year old father of two garland awaiting sentencing after already serving seven years for a bank robbery Devante, son of a quote queen pin in Richmond's street drug trade, and Teddy Kane, who is released before the project starts but is allowed to visit. The third and seven-year-old is a former gang member, father and father, who is famous for robbing drug dealers of their cash. It would have perhaps been an honorable hustle if he was not addicted himself. The director and embedded artist speech spends two years getting to know the men and their families, these are stories of families trapped in addiction, chronic trauma, drugs, often camouflage. It isn't as if the men do not want to fly free, free of the burden addiction attaches, yet unacknowledged histories make wellness difficult. Men released from prison have trouble finding an employer who will give them a chance. The pressure to fit in, to be self-supporting, cracks a 
a thin veneer, and these men fall without nets. Shattered, they end up back inside. Teddy hugs a friend whom he sees when he returns to record with speech. This friend, who just did 32 years straight time, is back for a DUI. He couldn't find a job. Dignity. Teddy speaks of how he doesn't feel whole asking his mother or his woman to clothe him. The legal system is not usually a place for healing, but the studio, Speech's studio, is that threshing floor for those men who trust the process. Devante picks up the guitar and plays. It is something he has not done in many years. His band is gone. All the members strung out on drugs, he sold them. He is not an addict. Perhaps these men can reenter community eventually, but they first but first they must they might benefit from a complete soul washing and guided support. Time alone doesn't seem helpful, nor does acting like a job will make these men whole. It might for some, but not for those men with demons. The narcotics and alcoholics anonymous programs were not created with Africans in mind, rather for white men with inflated egos. Acknowledging the problem while not acknowledging the fact that you are not the problem, that Africans trapped by unaddressed American-born social psychoses are not the problem is not helpful. If the trauma is a part of one's formative years, like Anthony, whose father beats his mother, and Teddy, whose father introduces his child to crack cocaine, some of us get it wrong. These Innocent children grow into broken adults. Anthony is in and out of 20 foster homes. He is living on the street when he is arrested and doesn't have anywhere to go when he is released. 16 Bars looks at the choices some men make, and we watch as they try to reconcile the accumulated accumulation of harms and come up with something new without success. Art is a way to articulate the pain, to give experience form. However, once articulated, where is the medicine? Prison is not equipped as an institution, no matter how many good people work there, to resolve the problem. Speech says, quote, I believe in redemption. I don't care what you've done, end quote. And when we think about the unprecedented incarceration of American people, the question becomes, are we about rehabilitation? Are we about rehabilitation or just punishment? Teddy and Speech collaborate on Inspire. How as a that's a uh, song. How the way up, how the way to stop the cycle is to protect the children, all of them. As a community, we need to have more conversations about what reentry support looks like. One man tells Anthony when he is paroled into his community to take it easy and not try to do too much at once. But what does the youth do with his reflections or thoughts? those busy demons that are undoing any potential present good. Anthony feels unworthy. He doesn't have a practice yet to counter defeat. And again, I mentioned that you can meet the director at the screening on Friday evening at the Four Star, 2200-2200 Clement Street. And the phone number for the Four Star is 415-666-3488. And, again, this film also opens at the Smith-San Rafael Film Center uh, February 7th uh, through 13th. And now I'm going to play the song, Hold On. (laughs) 
And I've got these different versions of it. I think this is the one I like that's like the real upbeat one. We we heard last week a really nice one. It was a cappella, and it was really, really beautiful. But this one here, you can put on your dance shoes. Oh, no, that's not the one. I'm I'm going <laughs> to try this one.
this film, wow, it is really, really marvelous. And, and we're so happy that we're going to have the director um, join us this morning as well as uh, one of the, uh, I don't know, speech uh, <laughs> of the uh, the group uh, Arrested Development. Oh, who might be on the air right now? Let's see. <laughs> Good morning. Welcome to Wanda's Picks. Good, Good morning. This is Speech. Oh, wow. Just just called your name, and here you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, How I was just... Um, Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Wow, the film, uh, 16 bars. Uh, it is. It is simply riveting. Oh my goodness. You know those wow. men. They Thank just you. stay with you. Oh man, and you do too. Thank I you. when I was reading your bio, it's like wow, you spent the night in in the jail too. I didn't. I didn't see that part in the film. Yeah, we actually left that out because we wanted to keep the focus on the men and not make it mm. be about some celebrity coming in. It, it needed to be about the men. So that's that's why we decided to not include that into the film. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, the, the short synopsis says that the four inmates at the city jail in Richmond, Virginia, are part of a unique rehabilitation effort that involves writing and recording original music. The film follows their personal and artistic development as they produce an album with uh, Grammy-winning recording artist yourself, uh, Speech Thomas, from the iconic activist hip-hop group Arrest Development. And, and I was wondering if you could maybe talk about sort of what attracted you to this particular work, um, um, because one thing that you say in the film is that you believe in redemption. Yeah, definitely. I saw a... Um, program on CNN by Lisa Ling and mm-hmm. called This Is Life. And in that program, she was filming a daddy-daughter's dance in this exact same jail. And me oh. and my manager saw, we happened to see the program and uh, at the same time, and we called each other and was like, yo, this is, this is really moving to me what this sheriff of this jail is allowing for these inmates to do and the humanity of it, allowing them to have their daughters there and to have a dance and to have a DJ and, and all of this, it just it felt way more than what I tend to, to hear about and see in programs throughout the nation. So we decided to reach out to them to see if I could be of service, you know, and see if there was something that I could do musically with the inmates in this particular jail. And um, that's, that started a two-year conversation back and forth and um, before we would ever actually get there. Oh, wow, wow, yeah, yeah. So, wow, I mean, it's it's really, you know, sort of the idea of that this is in Richmond, Virginia, and, you know, we think about, you know, that, that early first colony, right? And um, yeah. in Richmond, in, you know, in Virginia, and Richmond is the capital, I believe. Is Richmond the capital of Virginia? That's a good question. I don't know. Well, I just I just know it. <laughs> I mean, I was in you know, um, I was in Fort Monroe, you know, at the National Memorial, uh, at, at the National Monument last August, and it was my first time in Virginia, and and I got a chance to go to Hampton um, University, you know, where that that big tree, the Freedom Tree, is, you know, where they read the Emancipation, you know, Proclamation at you know the end of uh, enslavement for our people. And it just sort of hearing the stories of our people in Virginia, I mean, they were like, 
real resolute and believe in freedom, right? And and then, you know, they have this story, you know, and, and this is the jail. This is where people are processed. And, and you know, and to see and to hear these stories and to see how some people are like, you know, trapped by chemicals, you know, because of the self-medication, you know, of trying to like deal with that trauma. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about, about your process, you know, and, you know, we see you in the studio and we see, you know, how much, you know, the, the, the synergy between you and the men, and particularly, you know, the young, the young man, you know, who's 21, my goodness, he is a youngster, um, Anthony, and, and we're just really rooting for folks, right? And, um, yes. but, but, you know, but it's not a happily ever after story necessarily. It's, but it, it is real. Not you know, in all ways. Crime and punishment, not crime and rehabilitation. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I wanted to say, you know, this movie is a microcosm. It goes in really deep. We focus on four mm-hmm. men. But when you pull out, it's a macro issue of trauma from historical abuses that are unprecedented. I mean, when you look at, for instance, some women who were trapped in a house, I think it was in Ohio, and they were trapped in a house by a predator for, for 15 years. And everyone in the nation, when those women were rescued, everyone in the nation thoroughly understood that they would be uh, the victims of some deep trauma that would take years to overcome. And my point is, is our nation hasn't thought deeply about the trauma that 400 years of torture and of of deep, deep oppression and trauma, what kind of impact that has generationally and mm-hmm. for this particular people, which is our people. So I think right. that this movie just sheds a light on it, even though it's a microcosm of four men. And, yes, going into the studio was an amazing experience because you start to hear the one-on-one stories that are going on behind the scenes of the people that we sort of – as statistics in jail. These are real men with real families and real situations that they're striving to overcome. And so it's, it's, you know, I was really blessed to be able to be with these particular four men. If we would have went into this jail two weeks later, a month later, we would have had no choice but to deal with numerous other men. So I love about, what I love about this film is it gives you as a viewer a chance to understand the depth of this. And at the same time, we were blessed to be able to get to know four amazing men that really represent millions of men that are presently locked away, and many of them for nonviolent crimes, and some of them even innocent. So it's a it's an mm-hmm. issue that we've got to tackle as this nation is striving to progress and move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a couple of clips actually. Um, I have one. Uh, of Garland and and I have another one of, of Teddy Kane. Um and I was wondering, um, Doc Garland Carr, could I could I play uh, one of them and we could talk a little bit more? Please, yeah. Okay. Um which one? Garland's first or or Teddy's first? I would say Garland first. Okay. Thank mm-hmm. you. 
Why don't we talk a little bit about the scene where where that um, particular song is shared? Yeah, so Garland is one of the um, men of this film. He's uh, an amazing singer, amazing songwriter. He wrote that song, obviously being inspired by numerous things, from gospels to slave songs from the early days of this country. And so just really... Um, powerful piece. What I love about that piece is that Garland wanted to do that with the men so that all, so that all of them could in, in their own way share their experience of pain and regret for the things that they've done and their passion for reform and to, to redeem themselves and, and to be better people. And I think that's a part that America doesn't really have a great conversation about, meaning we you know, in politics, people talk a lot about punishment, making sure people punish are punished for their crime, making sure people are locked away. That's a very um, popular sort of thought in American uh, politics. And yet the idea of reform and people repenting, people getting out and doing and being great citizens is not part of the conversation a lot of times. And so I think that song to me reminds me of the point of incarceration, what what is actually the point of it? And these men were very much on that path. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and and realistic about the the outcomes. You know, for instance, um, you know, Garland didn't know 
you know, he, he had to go to court and see what was going to happen, you know, whether or not exactly. you know, he was going to get, you know, go to a prison and have served a really long sentence or was he going to get another chance to to do something different. And, um, you know, he couldn't predict, but whatever was going to be the outcome, you know, he was going to accept it graciously and, and make the best of it. And and so so exactly. this film is also we're just sort of like waiting, like okay, what's gonna happen? <laughs> exactly. I think a lot of people who hear about this film think it's just me the entire time in a jail working mm. on music. It's not. We actually followed these men for about a year and a half. So it's a time capsule, and as I said earlier, a microcosm of the macro problem that's going on. But we followed these men out of the jail, their family lives their, you know, girlfriends and things like this, their children. So there's a whole full story that revolves around each man and woman that's in jail and in prison. And this movie goes into that. So I look at 13 um, as an incredible film documentary that looks at the macro problem and the historical problem of um, the huge incarceration rates, which are number one incarcerate, incarceration rates across the planet. So that looks at the macro, and then this one goes in with a fine, you know, a fine lens and looks at all of the micro problems that are going on underneath it all. And so that's what I like about this film. I feel like it's a, it's an addition to the conversations that have already been had about the prison uh, system and the reform that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Right, right. It, it's interesting. You you said thirteen, and I was sort of like, whoa, what a what an interesting slip of the tongue, right? Thirteen. <laughs> Right. Of 16. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 13th Amendment haunting us. Um, yeah, yeah, and in, only in this case, um, it's not just black men locked up. Um, you know, there there are men like you know Garland is not a person of African descent, and um, and you know he uh, um, he's a veteran uh, in in this bio. He's a veteran of the. Virginia prison system. A lot of these men are veterans because, you know, they they're they're suffering from from addiction, and and that really, gosh, that is such a powerful theme in this film that, you know, if people are you know, you know, addicted to a substance, you know, whether it's um, alcohol or something else like crack cocaine, um, or even nicotine. But the others, you know, the crack and the alcohol, you know, they, they end up in these spaces, and, and there's really no way to get well in a prison, right? That's what we see. This is not a place of wellness. In most instances, there is not. Uh, it is not. And, you know, it's interesting because the drug addiction piece, which is a huge part of crime, period, mm-hmm. throughout the nation, mm-hmm. and we see the disparities when people address drug addiction. In the 80s, it was crack. It was ravishing black neighborhoods throughout our country. And the response to it was harsher and harsher penalties, prison time, and so on and so forth. Now we have the opioid crisis. It is ravishing our country once again. But it happens to be with people primarily of white um, backgrounds and, and nationality. And the response tends to be different now. It's a health issue, it's a health crisis, and people need treatment. And so that disparity is very blaring, and it reminds you of 
something that Garland said in this film. Garland is a white brother who is locked up and had been locked up numerous times in his life for, for um, numerous crimes. And so he said that, look, I don't have bad parenting. I didn't come from a bad neighborhood. These were my decisions. These were things that he made mistakes like all of us do. We all make various mistakes in our lives. And he made some mistakes early on, and he got caught up into a, not only a system but a, a, an addiction. And then I look at some of the other men, and most of them, on the other hand, also made mistakes in their lives. But they had, in addition to that, the historical trauma that I was referring to just a moment ago. And that's not to make excuses, but that's the truth. And when you're trying to build a puzzle as to what to do to solve something, before you could do that, you have to break apart that puzzle to understand what is causing it. And that's why we as a nation have to have more and more conversations about redeeming what has happened um, over the hundreds of years that, that we can't ignore. And it's a blaring elephant that always shows itself in the room when numerous problems happen in our country. It just happened again when Jay-Z and Beyonce sat down for the, um, the, the um, allegiance, Pledge of Allegiance uh, during the Super Bowl. Well, the reason was for police brutality. And yet that is just another example of this elephant rearing itself in the middle of American reality. And so we've got to start dealing with what has actually happened and start to come up with real, real solutions that deal with it from the root. Mhm. Right, right. And and so, you know, they have this program, you know, where I mean, it was all voluntary, you know, the men um, you know, chose to participate, you know, in in this opportunity, you know, with you to be able to to, you know, do this recording. And and so we look at the transformative power of of art and being able to tell one story and, you know, we we look at, you know, Anthony you know, he's 21 years old, and he's already a father of two, and he's the youngest inmate on the cell block. You know, but all these men are men are struggling, particularly the the men of African descent are struggling with mental health issues like Anthony, you know, um, like Teddy. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's serious. Oh, my goodness. Um, and, 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 and one of the things – oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, no, mm-mm. Well, I was going to say one of the things you notice in this film is the historical and family traumas. So there is mm-hmm. dysfunction that has happened, um, part of it as a result of the historical things that I've been talking about, and part of it just dysfunction. And so um, you see that play out as well. So there's a few different demons that are sort of coming in. And, you know, Teddy said something powerful, and basically he was saying in the film, it's a Bible verse, where Jesus talks about um, demons that leave a man. And if you don't fill yourself up with something um, really, really powerful, what happens is the demons leave you, and then it comes back. But not only comes back, but it brings more demons with it. And that's what you see lived out in real life when you see dysfunctions in families and various pathologies that are passed down from generation to generation you've got to learn not only to stop those pathologies, but fill it up with the correct behaviors, the correct ways of thinking. So functionality has to replace um, dysfunctionality, and that's, that's one of the things that you see in this, in this film so blaringly. It's very, very powerful and, and, and just moving. I mean, people at the end of this film, many of them, there's not a dry eye, and mm-hmm. it's just a very 
great opportunity to peer into a world that you probably, most viewers don't probably understand a lot about. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, I'm really sure. Are, are you driving? I am, yes. I, oh, okay. <laughs> I hear traffic. Um, okay, yeah, I was um, just thinking you know, as you were talking about, about the legacy, you know, that a lot of these, you know, at one point children inherit, like Teddy when he's a little boy. And and he gets um, beat up, and what his father tells him, and then you know he's you know he's 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 sharing two households, his mother's household and his father's household, and the mother doesn't know what's happening to her child in the father's household. I'm like, oh, you know, and and we we think about you know sort of this whole thing around custody and how when the court sort of gets in the family, like becomes a part of a family. It's not always a good thing, you know, sort of the way that the court sort of steps in but doesn't really know what it's stepping into. And then, (laughs) yeah, yeah. And then then sort of rights. Yeah, it's really, it's it's really tragic. And and these, like you say, these are our people. These are. And Teddy, as you just said, you know, saw a man get his head blown off when he was a young child and literally blood splattered on his face. And this is what he explains in the film. And, his, you know, he called his, his father and was like, Dad, this is what happened. And his father was like, listen, you're in the hood. You can either be a wolf or a sheep. If you want to be a sheep, you go and live with your mother. If you want to be a wolf, lick the blood off your face and come home with me. And that's the response that the father said to a young boy. Mm-hmm. And so you see that trauma that most people would have to get treatment for. I mean, even people that go off to war, some of them will never see anything like that. And others who obviously have, many of them will have to get treatment and so on and so forth. This is, this is some of the realities that we're faced with in our country. And then not to mention even Anthony, who spoke about his mother and the domestic abuse, abuse that was happening right in his own household. And him trying to understand what is right and wrong in life was totally skewed when he saw his mother, as he would explain in the film, get the brakes beat off of her. And the response of the mother, when the when he called the police to try to stop this abuse, the response of the mother, which we know is all too common, was to lie and say, no, nothing happened, officer. You know, I just fell down the stairs or something like that. And he, as a young boy, had to try to register well, what exactly is happening? There's something more than meets the eye here that I don't understand. And his whole perspective of what was right and wrong in life was thoroughly messed up. And then even you have Anthony, um, Devante, I'm sorry, who you can see his family in the film, who his mother was a kingpin. She was one of the biggest drug dealers in the city. His family was deeply addicted. If we go into his house and you can see the realities that he has to deal with on a daily basis. So, you know, it's just, um, it's very sobering, but it also, mm-hmm. for me at least, I hope it's a tool to help people to roll up their sleeves and say, listen, this is correctable and this is preventable. Um, I say in one of my songs, United Minds, that an ounce of prevention beats a pound of cure. This is preventable for our future generations, but we have to start dealing with it and dealing with it realistically. 
Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, do we want to um, play the uh, the Teddy Kane um, inspired uh, piece and then talk Definitely. a little bit more? Okay. I've been coming back and forth to jail since I was 10 years old, man. I made a career out of that. Now I realize I got a gift to make music. So it kind of fuels me that maybe somebody may hear the song and it may inspire them to at least look at life different. I wrote this to inspire. I pray that it do. I wrote this to inspire, if you're tired of the liar, and the bias, and the violence, gotta stand on top of that giant, like King David and Goliath, for the fellas that can't get higher, earth since so bombing up the White House, seems like the White House done got wider, in the air when we hold our lighters, for the convicts locked on Rikers, and the lifers, and that moment is hooked on crack, selling her kid diapers, to the young black man indicted, could have been a trap pick for the Vikings, got pulled over, he ain't got a license, caught with some crack in the scale and the rifle, just cause I'm black in my skin, I like you, when I walk past, don't jump like I'm a bite you, just trying to open up the door for you, cause I got manners, I'm a man, understand this fight, we ain't never asked you to come to this punch, took us from my own land, called us punkies, changed our language, whipped us bloody, death types, cops, can't fix with no money, time never wasted, mind elevated, raising the 80s, could have went crazy, but God showed favor, your soul, he can save it, baby, with a baby, you can still make it, Got support with DBT, raise their kids on VEC, set their paychecks week to week. Now ain't no gunshots when they sleepin'. I don't die by choice.
Yeah. That's really a beautiful part of the film. You know, when we I guess we're at are we at your studio, um, with the uh yeah, the children? That's my studio. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That was um that part always gets me when I whenever I watch the film and obviously I've seen it a million times and it's like it still gets <laughs> me whenever I watch it. You know, when you when you take a journey and watch these men on this film, it's such a powerful film. I definitely want everyone to go check it out. 16barsthefilm.com it definitely shows where it's at and where you can see it. But when you take that journey through this film and you end in this place where you see these incredible, bright, you know, stars in their eyes kids singing this song about their lives and being inspired. And it just is so moving. And I don't know, it's just, it's just such a special song. I really love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is really, it is really, really beautiful. Um, that particular moment, it sort of gives you hope because uh, you have all these children, these these beautiful. And then you know, and then in in the studio, you know, at the jail, um, you know, Teddy, um, it's so so cool. Like you and Teddy are are thinking the same thing at the same time. <laughs> it's like exactly, yeah. which is totally divine. <laughs> mhm. Mhm. Yeah, I yeah, totally agree. Yeah. That happened um, numerous times throughout this film, just very divine mm-hmm. moments that just mm-hmm. let you know God was watching over the whole process. And and mm-hmm. it was it was very, very moving. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, any other divine moments that come to mind? Well, for me personally, a lot of this was, I mean, just the fact that we were able to get into this prison. And then when mm-hmm. we were able to, two years after starting this conversation with them, um, I'm sorry, jail, when we were able to get into that jail, the sheriff, C.T. Woody, was amazing. He was the most instrumental part of us getting in there. He got voted out right after we finished filming. And so what? you talk about divine oh. divine will. He was voted out by the people of Virginia, of Richmond, for hmm. someone that didn't have that same passion for this music program. So hmm. you just think about how windows open and how God wants us to utilize that window while it's open because, you know, he may allow it to be shut again and open other windows in the future. But this window was open for a very small amount of time. We were inspired to, I say we, me and my manager, were inspired to call. We did. Mm-hmm. We tried to make some things happen. We did. And that window was closed soon after we finished filming. If we would have, if the election would have happened in the middle of our filming, we possibly could not have made the movie. Mm. Wow. So yeah, it's yeah, been a lot of divine inspiration. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, sort of in the you know, having that thought, acting on it and being in that particular window, you know, we see it in a lot of times in science fiction. The window's open like a portal and then it closes. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Mm. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's like a portal. Oh, wow. Portal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking, um, you know, about about you know your band Arrested Development and um, and just the whole idea of because you know this all starts for a lot of these men that we meet as children. So there's an Arrested Development, literally, right? And and so that yeah. you would be the one to step into this portal, you know, with the kind of of um, history and understanding of history that you carry with you, you know, artistically. And 
you know, and through your your work, um, you think about that as another, you know, like <laughs> a divine intervention that I you heard agree. it, right? Mm-hmm. No doubt about it. And that's the reason we even named our group that is because of what we saw, which was numerous cases of arrested development. And we wanted to put that name up as a chalkboard of what we wanted to fight against. So, yeah, that's you see that you see all the different things that are sort of tying together. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I was thinking, I remember when um, when I saw the film Crime After Crime, and and I saw that um, that you know that you all you know Rest Development had once again, <laughs> um, you know this time at a women's prison in California, the California Women's Facility, where um, uh, Deborah Peekler, um, you know who is now an ancestor, may her soul rest in peace, um, had a uh, a gospel choir, and and you all you know um, you were there, and I don't know exactly sort of the the in the workings of it, but you're in the film. Um, crime after crime, yes. and so this seems to be um, kind of something that, um, if if at all possible, you know, you can, you know, intervene. Um, you show up. Exactly, and that's you know, I have a very simple life philosophy, and that is do what you can with what you have with the people around you, and so whenever the opportunity arises, then I do what I can. And to me, it keeps it simple. It doesn't make it feel like you got to be the savior of the whole world. None of us will be the savior of the whole world. There's already someone that does that job. The point of us is to do what we can with what we have with the people that are around us at the time. And that keeps it simple. So I, that's personally what I strive to live by. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah, yeah. And and there is there is a soundtrack that's available or going to be available, right? It's available now, yes. It's on all oh, it streaming services, and it's 16 bars, and um, the soundtrack, and um, the songs that, you, you know, your 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 listeners and viewers maybe heard, you know, it's all on the streaming services right now, and we even have vinyl that you can get on our website, which is 16barsthefilm.com, and also my website, brotherspeech.com, you can get all of the, all of the above. Um, any any closing thoughts? I want to let our audience know again, um, you know, that we're speaking um, to Speech uh, Thomas, who was a facilitator, you know, in this this um, project at the uh, Richmond um, County Jail, um, and uh, in the film Sixteen Bars, One Jail, One Recording Studio, directed by Sam Bathrick, who is going to be in San Francisco this Friday, uh, February seventh, um, at the Four Star. And uh, the film is going to be running the 7th through the 13th, and it'll also be at the uh, Smith Rafael in San Rafael, same same time, the 7th through the 13th. Maybe he might be traveling across the Richmond Bridge over to that particular um, facility, uh, facility, um, facility, I'm thinking prisons, um, theater as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, no, I want to give a shout-out to the men in the film. And, all you know, mm-hmm. Devante, Anthony, Garland, Teddy, and, of course, to Sam, who did an incredible job directing, and I, I give him a huge shout-out and all of his team. And, um, and of course, you know, the truth of the matter is is that these men are, like I said, a, a, a microcosm of what's going on in our nation. The election season is coming up. I think people can look into the different candidates that they 
believe will best do the job to get some some change started and that that's what we're really needing and um mm-hmm. so i think it's a great time for people to feel empowered too to be able to change some things right right yeah and are any are there any after the film moments um that you can share um about some of the men that you know um you know once the film was over you know it is what yeah, it is yeah, but definitely. Definitely. I mean, I, I want to say that for people that haven't seen the film, I don't want to give too much away, but this is obviously a time capsule of a certain amount of time. So we filmed for a year and a half, and their lives are continuing to move forward. So there's numerous things that have happened. I'll share a couple of great things that have happened because of the film. Number one, we had to work out all the red tape in order to do this, but we were able to pay um, the men in this film for their art, their art. And so they got money. To, to be part of this project in the long run because of the, the record deal that, that happened because of this. And mm-hmm. Garland, who you'll see his girlfriend in the film, was able to buy a ring with the advance money that he got, and they were able to get married, which is an amazing thing we're so proud of <laughs> about this film. Mm. And then yeah. also um, Teddy, who was actually at the San Rafael debut screening of this film, uh, we actually mm-hmm. brought him there. He got out of jail. He was there with us and standing ovation for him. And at mm-hmm. that exact um, filming or screening, he was homeless at the time. And people poured so much love into him where he got a $40,000 opportunity to be a part of a you know rehabilitation program. And so he's mm-hmm. doing much better right now. He's in Atlanta, with, which is where I'm at. And uh, oh. so just some amazing, amazing things have happened because of the mm-hmm. film and because of people's emotions about these men having met mm-hmm. them on the film. People have just really reached out. On my website, you can go to brotherspeech.com. There's a way for you to donate time or money. If you live in the Richmond, Virginia area, you could donate time to The Real House, which is where a lot of these men, when they get out of jail, they're able to transition back into life by going here. You could donate mm-hmm. money to that, or you could just spend some time there and just volunteer for those that are listening from that area. So, yeah, there's a lot of things that have happened since the film, but those are just mm-hmm. two that I could share. Oh, that's great. So the the real house, that's where um, where Anthony goes? Is that that place? That's the place where he was, exactly. Uh-huh, okay. Yeah, it seemed like a really... I like the energy just from the film uh, of that place. It seemed real peaceful. It is. And, it's very, very yeah. effective. Very effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much, and, and I hope this isn't the last conversation we have. Um, but thank you so much for your time. And, and I have one more song um, from Teddy's. Uh, uh, it's the Lost, Lost One that I can play um, yeah. as, as we conclude. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. You take good care. You too. Peace. Peace and blessings. Teddy got out of jail before we started filming. When I heard his demo, I asked if he could come back so that I could record with him. Okay, I'm ready. 
white justice in the black road. And I pray the Lord have mercy on my black soul. And I'm so tired of getting back dough. And I'd be rich if I had a dollar for every door that got closed. See a near broadcast the footage. Unknown black man in his early 20s. Filled up with bullets. And I don't know another way to put it. But that's messed up to cover up my head with Trayvon hoodies. From Charlotte to Tulsa to Cleveland, they can't justify how we died for no reason. Just guilty for speeding, they pull us over next minute, you bleeding. No, don't talk about freedom, just look how they did the king, they kill all our leaders. Lock a dog in the cage and mistreat him. Then what you think gon' happen once you release him? Yeah, how much more a human being? And this can't be true what I'm seeing. But it is, and it is what it is. And they miseducating our kids. It's time that we face all our fears and erase all our tears. And boycott the malt liquor bills. You won't sell that malt liquor here. Old English was a slave ship. We getting minimized, dying of genocide in the same ship. Instead of putting money in the school system, they take money and build a new prison. And guess who going in it? Prison industrial complexes. A one-way ticket because of my complexion. And by any means, I'm going to protect what y'all threaten. That's why we ride with pistols up under them armrests. Cause we civilly unrested and because I'm black I might get arrested. We lost one. For the lost one, for the lost one. When the police is gunned down that unknown black man, we lost one, we lost one. And he ain't had no gun, just his phone in his hand. We lost one, we lost one. For the mamas and dads that's on their knees praying. For the lost one, for the lost one. They voice can't be heard, so that's why I'ma stand. For the lost one, for the lost one, for the lost one. That's why we gon' stand for the lost one. Wow. Ah, that was Teddy. Um, and uh, this is the film, 16 Bars, One Jail, One Recording Studio. And we were so excited and so happy to speak to Speech, uh, a two-time Grammy winner, uh, widely considered one of the godfathers of conscious hip-hop, his band Arrested Developments, 1993 debut album, Three Years, Five Months, and Two Days in the Life of went quadruple platinum and was and achieved what few thought was possible at the time, establishing an Afrocentric alternative to gangster rap that was commercially viable. Twenty five years later, Speech continues to tour the world with his band and seek out opportunities to use music to address issues of social and racial justice. In two thousand seventeen he set out on a journey to the Richmond City Jail where he conducted music workshops with inmates, and even spent the night inside the jail. His goal was to shed light 
on the complex issues in our criminal justice system by bringing the voices and stories of incarcerated people to a larger audience. And, uh, yeah, what a wonderful conversation. And uh, since we have a little bit more time left on this particular show, I was going to um, to play the um, Dr. King special, which uh, starts off with another interview with uh, Dr. Daniel Buford, um, and then um, shifts into a conversation with um, Zach Norris um, after we talk to um, our sister, uh, 